The cool thing about my job is that I'm a little bit of a professional nosy person. I like to learn things by reading and doing research, but also by listening, talking to different types of people to dig deep on the issues that shape our everyday lives. On this show, to understand guaranteed income, we've talked to the experts who theorize how it works. Guaranteed income are often thought as instruments of freedom. We've talked to folks who've participated in guaranteed income programs. My body's going to dance, and I have no shame whatsoever. And now, to add one more piece to the puzzle, in this episode, we talk to some of the people who are making guaranteed income a reality in Chicagoland right now. There was a harm that occurred here. We're going to heal together in one way or another, right? And this compensation is not the end-all, be-all. It is what you deserve. I'm Eve Ewing, and this is Guaranteed, the podcast where we find out what happens when regular people around my hometown, the Windy City, Chicago, Illinois, receive direct cash assistance, guaranteed income. We learn about the choices people make, the dreams they pursue, and the impossible things that get a little more possible when folks get a little bit of money, guaranteed. Every episode of Guaranteed, obviously, is the bomb.com, but this episode overfloweth with interesting guests. First, we're going to talk with the person overseeing the largest guaranteed income pilot in the country. Then we're going to talk with a community organizer who's leading the charge to make sure guaranteed income supports some of our most vulnerable neighbors. And then to close the episode, we have some super special surprise guests that I will introduce later. I hope all of these conversations will help us make connections between what we learned from our program participants, Stephanie, Sharif, John, Topaz, and Raul, shout outs to them, with some of the bigger picture issues still swimming around in my head and maybe yours too. First up, Tony Preckwinkle. She's the Cook County Board President, meaning she's the Chief Executive of Cook County, which includes Chicago. I'll let her tell you more. Cook is the second largest county in the country. Uh, Los Angeles is the largest. It has more than 11 million people. We have 5.2. So second largest county in the country with about 40% of the population of the state. It's very diverse, both economically and in terms of its people. Our population is very diverse. Cook is about 26% Latino, about 24% African-American, about 8% Asian. So... You shared a lot of important things, but for those in the audience who may be listening that are from New York, the most important thing is that Chicago is the home to Cook County and Cook County is larger than any county in New York. I just want to make sure that we got that on record for anyone who may be listening. <laughs> Sorry to those New Yorkers. Um, so you used to be a history teacher. Tell us about that. Where were you a history teacher and what did you teach? If you're a history teacher in high school, and I was a high school history teacher, you teach everything. American history, world history, geography. Uh, I taught African-American history. I loved it. I taught in public, private, and parochial schools, and I loved being a teacher. I left it, however, when my first child was born and took a straight job, a nine-to-five job. But I, you know, I, really, I really enjoyed it. And I always say teaching is great preparation for, for being an elected official. Teenagers are a very tough audience, and I always say you have to be your authentic self uh, if you're going to get anywhere. In talking about guaranteed income, you've invoked the historical legacy um, and the fact that this is not a new idea. So could you talk a little bit about that and some of the, the historic inspirations that you've brought to this initiative? Well, um, Martin Luther King in 1967 talked about guaranteed income. And earlier, of course, the Black Panthers did as well. Guaranteed income or guaranteed employment. Both of them talked about that. You know, I, I, I describe him as an American prophet. And you know, clearly the ideas that he had, not just about uh, racial justice, but about economic justice, you know, continue to resonate today. What was the moment when you realized, OK, this is something that is a good fit for our county. This is something we want to go forward with. The federal government has poured resources into local governments through the American Rescue Plan Act. The county got a billion dollars. The city got two billion. The state got 16 billion. And, you know, I always say that the federal government hasn't invested those kind of resources in our people in this country or in our government since the Great Depression, and that's the 1930s. So it's been 90 years since the federal government has plowed these kind of resources into local government and given us really incredible discretion on how we use the money. So it was in the course of looking at how we were going to 
invest our American Rescue Plan Act resources in recovery, that we talked about guaranteed income, we talked about eliminating medical debt and some other kinds of things that we just frankly didn't have the resources to do. What are some of the critiques or questions that you heard and were there, you know, we know that there are some that perhaps felt like just bad faith arguments, but were there things that gave you pause or where you thought, okay, we really have to think this through? I think there's a narrative in this country that poor people will make bad choices if you give them money. And the emphasis historically has been more on programs to support people rather than just giving them cash to help them. People who have modest resources do the same things with their money as everybody else. They pay for the roof over their head. They feed their families. They try to get good health care for their kids. You know, across the country, that's what people have found. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I see this as a, as a contributor to the national dialogue about where we're going with guaranteed income. Because really, it's the federal government that has the resources, and the federal government has to have a guaranteed income program. It shouldn't be left to cities and counties. So is that part of how you see the hopeful impact of this initiative, is that not only that you're going to transform the lives of people here in Cook County, but that you're serving as a model? Because we are, again, the second largest county in the country, more than New York. (laughs) Well, we have the largest guaranteed income program in the the country. Uh, We've committed to two years. $500 a month per family. And we've promised that we'll make the program permanent, which I don't think anybody else has done. So both in its size and its permanence, um, I think those are unique factors. And, you know, we're going to continue to pound this drum as long as I'm in office. And hopefully, as I said, we'll be part of the the national effort to move the, the federal government in this direction. You mentioned earlier that most of the time government addresses poverty or inequality or wealth inequality through really targeted programs, which in your view is partially based on this lack of faith that low-income people make good choices. In your career, you've been at the helm or been involved in a lot of those programs, specifically targeting housing, specifically targeting healthcare, specifically targeting um, other kinds of particular need. How does this feel different to you in its impact? Well, I'm, I'm please, I'm not denigrating the, the programs and projects sure. that are focused on, on serving people who have unmet needs. But I think in addition to that, so this is a compliment, it's not a substitute. Person Andrew Yang, the guy who ran for president and said, basically we ought to, we ought to have guaranteed income, but then we ought to eliminate all the programs. Oh, that was a terrible idea. So um, no, my idea is you, you, you do all of it, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that in addition to trying to provide more affordable housing, providing better physical and behavioral health services, better access to healthcare, Acknowledging that healthcare is a human right and trying to be sure that everybody has healthcare coverage, you've got to just give people more money. People express their gratitude because government hasn't done this before, right. invested in them and trusted their good judgment. And then they talk about, you know, there's a family where the new parents um, are having trouble because childcare is so expensive. And with these extra resources, the mother could continue to work part time and continue her education and not have to worry about the the tension between returning to work and paying for childcare and managing that. So, you know, I I think those are, those are the kinds of examples. As I said, people invest in housing, they invest in food and shelter, they invest in education for themselves and their children. That's what all of us would do if we had a little more money. Cook County, we get national attention for other people's perceptions of our safety or the lack thereof. And oftentimes there's a pretty narrow set of what people think are the policy solutions to that, often which policing, surveillance, and and kind of thinking about how we address crime as opposed to thinking about how we make people more safe holistically. Do you also see this as part of that work? Is this also making the county a safer place to live? And what does safety mean to you in that regard? Well, usually when we talk about safety, unfortunately, the, the national narrative is around policing and around law enforcement rather than investment in our communities. And clearly we have to have more effective policing, uh, that isn't to say more police, but more effective policing. We have to invest in our communities. And those investments can be investments in you know, affordable housing. They can be in investments in our schools, but they can also be investments in our families. And so I'd say that you know, whatever we can do to, to stabilize folks who are struggling contributes to the vitality of the communities and the safety of all of us. You mentioned earlier in talking a little bit about your own story, you were a teacher in lots of different settings. Are there times when you think, man, this kind of money in my pocket could have really made a difference in my life? You know, well, when my son was born, you know, I was working part time. We had been a two income family and it 
it it was a, it was a challenge, right? You know, we don't we don't support families very well in this country, and especially families with young children. Which, if you're concerned about the future of the country, you would think that that's a logical investment to make. Families with young children, we ought to support them every way we can. We ought to have inexpensive or no cost childcare for everybody. I mean, and we don't. It's one of the many ways in which we are a very wealthy country, and we don't pursue what I think are not only compassionate but logical policies that you know are investments in our future. So, do you think for you that would have made a difference to be able to make that investment in childcare, for example? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how young families support childcare these days. No. I think a lot of them also don't know. <laughs> it's just the, is the honest answer. Um, in some of the conversation I've heard you had publicly about guaranteed income, one of the things you've said is that, look, the government has actually been directly responsible as a source of oppression and marginalization for some people. And you've given some specific, again, historical examples of that as a, as a person who thinks about history. And so therefore, you said it's really important that government also think about forms of redress. Could you talk again just a little bit more about that as someone who looks at the past through this very analytic lens? What are some of the forms of harm that you see that government has enacted that are possibly being addressed here? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to understand that slavery is enshrined in our Constitution. <laughs> so from the very beginning in this country, from the very beginning, government was promoting inequality and oppression. You can look at the fugitive slave laws, you know, that demanded that people in free states return fugitive slaves to slave states. That's historic. You can talk about, you know, Chinese exclusion laws in the late 1800s. You can talk about the internment of the Japanese in the Second World War. After all, we were fighting the Italians and the Germans, and we there may have been a, an internment camp for the Italians, because I read a book about that once. But we took all the Japanese Americans from the West Coast and put them in internment camps in like Idaho. I, I used to keep when I was when I was working for the city in the 19. 1980s, I had on my wall in my cube, I had the story about George Bush. Basically, the government agreed to reparations for Japanese Americans, 10 cents on the dollar for all of the wealth that they lost when they were forced, like on 24 hours notice, to move to these internment camps. Now, African Americans in this country were, were in bondage for 250 years. 10 cents on the dollar would be an incredible amount of money for us. But again, that's the government-sponsored oppression. And more recent things like redlining, government decisions about where mortgages were going to be extended. And basically in communities of color, those were the ones that were had red lines around them and you weren't supposed to make investments in those communities. And of course, the, the financial institutions followed the government's lead on that. Contract buying in, in Chicago, this incredible way of extracting wealth from the black community. So there are all these just profoundly disturbing examples of the ways in which government has been the sponsor of oppression. So we have to do what we can as government leaders now to address those wrongs and to try to support people who have been harmed by government action. So this leads to a probably pretty predictable or logical question. If we're talking about harm, we're talking about this as a form of repair. Do you see a pathway towards something like reparations in Cook County? Do you see this as a version of something like reparations? You know, I think let's let's talk about the Affordable Care Act. President Obama said um, what we need is to provide health care for, for all Americans. Be sure that all Americans have access to good health care. Now, the Affordable Care Act, and particularly the expansion of Medicaid, disproportionately impacted communities of color in a positive way because people of color disproportionately were in sectors of the economy where they didn't have jobs that provided health care, pensions, sick days, whatever, right? He didn't say we're doing this so that we can help black and brown people who are marginalized in the economy and are disproportionately represented in sectors where they don't get health care, pensions, sick leave, whatever. He said we're going to provide health care for all Americans. I think you're, you're much better off making the case that we're doing things for everybody who needs it rather than trying to make the case for reparations. I just think politically that's much more palatable. Are there things that you want to learn at the end of the two-year pilot phase of this program that you feel will shape the way the long-term um, efforts look like? We're doing this with academic researchers, so they have a control group as well as our participants. And so I'm, I'm really anxious to see the comparative data between those two groups and the ways in which 
we hope, participants had their finances stabilized, their situations, both in an economic sense and a sort of a psychological sense. In every way you can think of, I'm looking to see what the data tells us. If there are people listening to this who are thinking, I'm an organizer, I'm a community member, I'm a voter, or maybe an elected official might be listening to this as well, what are the things that people can do to mobilize efforts like this where they live? The way this is supposed to work in this country is that local government is the laboratory for innovation. And when there's enough momentum nationally around a particular new idea or innovation, the federal government picks it up. So what we need to do locally is have the idea of guaranteed income model programs or pilot programs as widely dispersed as possible so that people get to see them in action in their own communities and come to believe in them and then put pressure on their folks in Congress to do the same for the country as a whole. For most of our episodes, we talk to people that are guaranteed income program participants. So they're people who've received money and we ask them, what has this made possible in your life? And they have all kinds of answers you're probably familiar with, like childcare, mental health care, things like that. We want to ask you the same question. As someone who's had a long career in politics, uh, what has this made possible for you? What's exciting or rewarding for you just personally about this work? A lot of things that you do in government take years to bear fruit, but the program was up and running pretty quickly. I think six weeks is what, is that accurate? Yeah, in contrast to other programs, This one had a pretty short implementation period. And so, you know, there's an opportunity to impact people pretty quickly. And that's heartening. When you design a policy, there are different ways to think about what makes it effective, right? How do you make the biggest change possible? Tony Preckwinkle's work with the Cook County Promise Program is reaching lots of people, over 3,000 families. That's one way of thinking about impact. Another way is to think about how you create a targeted program that focuses on making big investments to the specific people who've been most left behind or outright harmed by our economic structures. Richard Wallace is a guy who thinks about using guaranteed income for those people. Smaller numbers, bigger need. In this conversation, we talk through some of his worries about guaranteed income. We talk about reparations. And you'll hear us talk about a name you might have heard in the news, FTX. Once the third largest centralized cryptocurrency exchange, FTX is now bankrupt. And its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, faces criminal and civil charges for defrauding investors, which is real, real bad because their philanthropic arm had agreed to fund about a million dollars in guaranteed income here in Chicago. Lots to talk about. My name is Richard Wallace, and I am the founder of Equity and Transformation, also known as EAT. Uh, Side note, because it's Chicago and everybody knows everybody, Rich's daughter is also besties with my niece, and he used to be in a rap group with another good friend of mine. We just roll deep here. Okay, back to the interview. Our mission is to build social and economic equity for Black informal workers, Um, but we focus what we call on informal workers. That's a diversified set of economic activities that our folks engage in uh, in the absence of formal employment. So that's everybody from Alton Sterling to Eric Garner and cis and transgender commercial sex workers. You know, I came out of labor organizing and I felt like we consistently missed the mark. Um, It was either a deep investment in the cream of the crop or like a workforce development program that didn't actually render the jobs that were needed, right? And so there would be like a pre-apprenticeship program and this pipeline and people were getting millions of dollars to create pipelines that were empty on the other end. And I was like, if we're going to actually see change in this society, we actually got to go to the margins and organize the people who are closest to the problems to create the changes they want to see in their community. So would you say your folks that are engaging in the informal economy, do you see them as like this is a stepping stone to them eventually doing other types of work? Or do you feel like, hey, for some people, this is always the type of work that they're going to do? And I just want to give a couple more examples, right? You're also talking about folks that might be, you know, selling socks, selling mm-hmm. fruit, selling water bottles, selling DVDs, right? Many of us engage in all types of ways with with folks that are in this kind of informal sector. Mm-hmm. Many of us have family members and friends that are in this type of informal sector selling plates, right? Yes, like people, candy lady. <laughs> right, the, can- the candy lady. Lady, right. Like, um, and so, yeah, just to define that a little bit more. But, yeah, do you see this as like a stepping stone to something else? Or are there many people that you see that for the duration of their working life, this is the type of work that they're going to do? I like to say often that like our people are always working. 
you know, in a capitalist society, there's no one who's like absent of labor. It's just what is American culture considered labor, right? So the domestic labor, taking care of elderly, there's labor. Washing the dishes and cleaning up the house is labor. Everybody's doing labor on a consistent basis. And so we are not trying to demand that folks get into the formal economy because the formal economy is contradictions and challenges, right? We see informality as being a solution to the absence of uh, labor at scale. And so folks are really making an economy where there is none. Say, for instance, the state sees the, the labor deficit and solves it overnight. Then, okay, cool. Then everybody got a full-time job, living wage employment, like enough to make uh, ends meet and, and still provide, you know, some lux in life. Then great. But until then, you know, our folks are going to do what we got to do to survive. And that looks like everything, like you said, from bucket boys to selling plates. We try not to be critical of the activities that our folks engage in. What we are critical about is the system that they have to engage in it with. We understand that this system is maladjusted to black life at the end of the day. And, and so the reality is our folks are doing the best they can with what they have access to, to make ends meet. And so we try to, you know, focus on systems opposed to people that need to change. What happens in the informal economy isn't fixed. The jobs that exist there are not fixed. They, they migrate from informal to formal. We've seen that with bootlegging alcohol. We've seen that with cannabis recently. Number running in the lottery, right? And so when these pivots, or these shifts happen in the market where an informal occupation becomes formal, there's generally a lack of retention of Black bodies on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Why are agency and dignity important in how we talk about labor and economics? And do you see people exercising their agency differently in informal spaces? For some people, is informality a way to increase their agency that they might not otherwise have? Oftentimes, we assume that formal labor is a safe space for our people. And it's often like people that are in the formal economy who are like, yeah, come on, come with me. And they got their suit and their tie on. And I've been that brother where it's like, you know, that pull your pants up mentality. If you just pull your pants up, you get a, a living wage employment opportunity. And that's not true. Part of formal employment is like literally severing oneself from your culture. It's cut your dreadlocks. Speak the way we speak. It is the mask wearing um, that Fanon talks about. It is all of those things, right? It's not a safe space, so it can't be the destination. Also, for folks that are parents or caretakers, often has a lot less flexibility yes, for people. Right. People who have a disability, people who have limited transport or limited mobility, some of that is just not really an option. Formal labor is, is a racist, ableist, transphobic, sexist system. And we're like, we need everybody in there. It's like, no, 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 pause, family. Like, we don't need all of our folks up in there. Like, we should be thinking about, you know, cooperative spaces, uh, solidarity economies. We should be thinking about other opportunities for our folks to actually show up and be whole. Even my work as the founder of Equity and Transformation is ensuring that our folks can show up as their whole self, not saying that, you know, the formal labor system is the, is the end goal. It is a space that needs to be transformed, um, and we are in the act of transforming that, that system. You are also entering into this as a labor organizer, as an organizer in general. And so what is some of the organizing agenda look like for you right now? And in what ways are you trying to organize folks that you work with who are participants in the informal economy? What types of things are top of mind for you? Well, one, during the pandemic, our folks were excluded from the CARES Act because they hadn't worked in the last five years and they owed child support, which in our mind was like, actually, if you owe child support and you haven't been able to provide for your kids, and you haven't worked in the last five years, you're probably the folks in the most need. And we did a direct cash payment and rent support uh, program during the pandemic. And that's an alternative that came out of the imagination of informal workers. Um, it's looked like produce and protests when they, you know, they locked the city down and there was dispersal orders and curfews on the West side. And folks literally are in food deserts. So like my, my sister Dara Cooper says, food apartheid connecting with black farmers to bring fresh produce to the community so they could still have access to fresh food during the lockdown. Um, that looks like the Chicago Future Fund, which is a guaranteed income program solely for black informal workers and black formerly incarcerated people in the city of Chicago. The idea of EAT at its best is to create that space for folks to dream and then do our best, whether it be raising resources or bringing uh, Excel spreadsheets to the to the table, right, to be like, okay, this is a good idea. How do we bring it to scale? How do we bring it to fruition? And continue to, you know, spread the message. And I think last but not least is the uh, big payback, which is our drug war reparations campaign. 
And we really do want to recenter, you know, survivors of the war on drugs in this cannabis equity conversation. Right now, I think a lot of the talk is around businesses getting to scale and not getting licenses and this, that, and the other. But the original intent around the bill was to center survivors and provide reparations for the war on drugs. And so for us, it's like, that means that you're compensating survivors. That means you're rehabilitating survivors. That means restitution. That means a guarantee of non-repetition. And if you look at the numbers right now, the majority of the arrests that took place under legalization have been of Black folks. So it's not reparations, right? So let's talk more about the Chicago Future Fund, you know, just to restate a guaranteed income initiative that is specifically focused on folks that have been formerly incarcerated or involved in the criminal legal system in some type of way. First of all, how did um, guaranteed income first become a space that you were interested in as you were thinking about all the different initiatives that you've been working on through EAT? It started in the pandemic and we had done all of that direct financial assistance work, mutual aid work, and we had like no proof that it worked. Although we knew that it worked. Like we had people that were like, you know, grateful that were able to buy diapers, et cetera, et cetera, because of the program. And so I had reached out to a close friend of mine, Dorian from Center for Community Change. And I was like, yo, like we want to do a guaranteed income program. And I'd heard about it, but I didn't really know too much about it. Right. Um, And then he sent me the, you know, the results from the seed study in Stockton. I read that there was increases in psychological wellness, increases in, in, in physical mobility, just increases across the board. Income volatility had stabilized in folks' houses. And I was like, isn't this what we want at the end of the day for our folks? And so I began looking up like guaranteed income, formerly incarcerated, da 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 da. And there was no studies at the time on formerly incarcerated people. And it scared me because I knew that if we weren't in the study, we wouldn't be in the results. That means that we would not be in the actual practice of guaranteed income. If we're not included in the study, they, they can't tell if it's beneficial or not. And then we had to raise the money for it, which is like, all right, we got a grand idea. And, you know, and the folks in the community like, yeah, let's do it. And I'm like, OK, cool. And then it was like, we got to get this money to actually distribute. And so we landed on the first round was 30 participants. And we focused on West Garfield Park because the rates of intercommunity violence were extremely high. The same demographic that was the highest, which was young African-American men ages 18, I believe 35 represented the vast majority of the folks that were uh, perpetrators of violent crime, but also survivors and victims of violent crime. Mm-hmm. And then if you take a look at that statistic, you would put it right next to the unemployment statistic. And that same demographic had the lowest employment rates in the nation. High rates of unemployment, there's a direct connection between intercommunity violence, rates of unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. If we can create an intervention here and focus it on West Garfield Park, again, the per capita income was around 11900 and it's only $6,000 a year, which doesn't do anything if you live in Lincoln Park, right? Right. But that's that's 1.5 time, times, right? Like, that's half the your income. income. Right. Exactly. Right. So right. we're like, we can have the biggest impact if we focus on West Garfield Park. And we have been doing a lot of work off Madison and Pulaski, and it just became like a, a no-brainer to focus there. And so, yeah, we launched the first round with 30 participants. It's a study. So it's looking at income volatility, psychological wellness, physical functioning, and recidivism. And then recently in February this year, we launched the second round with 100 participants. And this time we focused on Austin, Inglewood, and West Garfield Park because the South Side was like, why ain't y'all over here? I was like, I got you. I got you. Trip. Um, <laughs> I think as a South Sider, I think, you know, we, we get a lot. We got a lot going on. It's okay to let the West Side do some things. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so now we have to get to the, the thorny part, which is that one of the decisions that you made in thinking about how you were going to raise this money was thinking about money from cryptocurrency. Mm. And so could you, <laughs> sorry, you said, Lord you're Jesus. like, I'm so excited to talk to Eve. Yeah, got yeah. him. But this is good. This is learning. This is learning yeah. for everybody. So, so tell us a little bit about that decision, that opportunity, the idea that okay, we can we can fund this with some crypto money. Yeah, no, I mean it wasn't even funding it with crypto money. I got reached out to from folks that I trusted in relationship to a deep investment in the city of Chicago, right? And they had gotten word about the Chicago Future Fund. They're like, this is a pilot program that we want to invest in. And so I ran all of the background that I could possibly run, my due diligence, legit, as much as I could. We were like, okay, well, they're committed to fund the program. They have invested in like Democratic leaders, the Biden campaign. There's like a lot of, there's a track record of like legit investment. And so we were also in business with the extension of the FTX crypto company, which was FTX Us, which is a foundation. 
um, people often get that messed up. There's a foundation that was attached to FTX. And so we had, you know, a commitment to fund the pilot from top to bottom. We weren't even, to be honest, we were not even thinking about running a second round of the Chicago mm. Future Fund at the time. But it came to us like on a silver platter. And so we were like, okay, we'll bet in, in this way we can get these, move these resources. And I think that's part of the, the ethos of EAT is like, we move resources to the people as quick as possible, right? Like, I think a lot of times the capital perverts the nonprofit sector and some of its leaders. So it's like important to get the resources, give them to the people. And so we were like, all right, bet we'll run a second round of the Chicago Future Fund. And then I'm in South Africa and I get a text message from one of our teammates like, yo, you need to look into FTX. And I'm like, what you mean? <laughs> and there's talk about a merger or something. So I reach out to the foundation. They're like, oh, Rich, don't worry about it. The foundation is separate from the entity itself, right? FTX. And I'm like, okay, cool. And so I continued on my day. And then I got an email, not even eight hours later from, from their team saying, we all quit. Dang. We all quit. And I was like, I'm in South Africa. We're, uh, I don't know how many hours ahead or behind, I forget, but I'm sitting there like, you got to be joking me. And it's like, I'm so far away from home that right. it was like painful because we had already gotten commitments from a hundred black formerly incarcerated folks within, I think what, 24 hours, they went from $8 billion to negative $8 billion or whatever that, you know, that, that big sweep. Right. I was like, at the time, like if anybody needs financial literacy, here you go. Right. Um, cause they'll talk about us for like messing up a snap benefit mm. card. Right. But this man. And so for me, it was like one of the hardest, I think moments of my life. But the most rewarding moment is when we actually were able to raise the resources for the program and launch. And when we launched, we had a hundred formerly incarcerated people walk into a space, feel love, feel the experience, like actually by other formerly incarcerated leaders who were at EAT, who welcomed them into the space, welcomed them into the program. And so for me, it was like I lost weight. I battled depression during the time. I questioned my leadership um because somebody like that can send an email like oh well we out you know and they're just gone and yeah. your relationships your trust your reputational capital yeah is on, on the, the line. you know yeah. and in chicago that's that's it first of all it's amazing that you were able to rally resources and make sure that that folks still got their money yeah and i think that honestly rich like it's a really tricky thing because Exactly what you said about redistributing resources. I think oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where on the one hand, it's dirty money, but on the other hand, there's no clean money. And mm. you think about the ways that this money could transform if it's from XYZ Corporation or whoever it is, you know, philanthropist, sometimes questionable person it can literally change somebody's life. And also you think like, isn't this what we want? Like, don't we want to take the money from the billionaires and give it to the people? But at the same time, it's complicated. So I wonder how you think about that now yeah. and how you think folks in guaranteed income in general should think about this in this space, right? If there's an opportunity to say, I mean, the FTX thing is an, in many ways an extraordinary situation. Yeah. But if there's an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I don't know, Bezos or whoever, they're coming and they're trying to redistribute this money money. How do we think about that? Yeah, I think the nonprofit sector is ripe with contradictions. You don't get surplus without exploitation. The praxis that, I, that I've been in has been redistribute the, the resources directly to the people. We are an organization that's led by formerly incarcerated people. So I think one of the greatest beneficiaries of any intervention are the salaries and the people who actually accumulate salaries at the organizations. They get stability, they get guaranteed income, they get benefits, you get universal basic income, they get universal health care. You get what I'm saying? Right. And so we employ formerly incarcerated system impacted people. You know, as it relates to the, you know, the guaranteed income community, not one of the guaranteed income funders funded EAT for our pilot, which made it very hard for us to raise resources because of the demographics that we were serving. Right. Mm -hmm. If we could have gotten resources from traditional foundations in relationship to the demographic that we were serving, we would have done so. Mm. The reality was that they weren't going to fund a black ED, a black formerly incarcerated ED to employ a guaranteed income experiment that muddies up their narrative around deservedness. 
Mm. It muddies up the process when you say formerly incarcerated people are deserving of guaranteed income. And to them, it was the opposite. They were not in support of the Chicago Future Fund. And it wasn't until we launched the first round that you began to see other FIP pilots within the country. And FIP is formerly incarcerated people, for who, for those who aren't hip to the, the lingo. Yeah, the acronym soup that we live in. I think if traditional philanthropy could support the ideation, the vision of formerly incarcerated leaders, we wouldn't have to, you know. But then even as it relates to traditional philanthropy is not clean money. Ever. I mean, what are we talking Ever. about? Like, and, 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 and in reality, if you actually take a look at the books, Boards, look at what they right. invest in. They overinvest in the problem and underinvest in the solution. And so what we're talking about is the endowments and where the endowments are held um, in relationship to the dividends that are that are spread out through grants, et cetera, et cetera. So if you really unwrap most of where these folks have their deep investments, it's actually in the systems we're trying to change. So you have like some of the biggest environmental crisis foundations that are supporting that work that are also overly invested into fossil fuels and you get what I mean? And so this yep, is, yep. it's the contradiction of, I think, the nonprofit sector, which I understand is is, is ripe with them, but it's, you know, it's, it's problematic, man. You know what I mean? Like, it is what it is at, at the end of the day, but I am also an abolitionist, you know what I mean? So I was like, my priority in that moment was not to, to, to dwell on Sam Bankman and the moves that he was making. I had a hundred folks who we had committed, you know, $500 a month to for 12 months. That's what I'm focusing on. This is actually the puzzle of wealth redistribution in the U.S. anyway, right? Which is that on the one hand, a very few number of people have accumulated massive amounts of wealth and we want to redistribute that. But on the other hand, it puts us in these kinds of what appear to be thorny situations as long as that redistribution is happening in this sort of piecemeal way and not in like a very broad scale way that looks like reparations or that looks like a different type of tax code. And so beyond this particular situation, how do we puzzle our way out of that? You know, Solidarity Economy gives great examples. I think workers cooperatives give great examples, but we're never going to be the ones who tell the community where to go. I'm going to walk through the contradiction with you. After we walk through that, like, let's assess. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. as that related to like cannabis. Right. We had a lot of folks are like, yo, I'm going to start my own business. We had them in there. Like, I'm going to start my own. I'm like, eh. you know, <laughs> you, you, you compete with Bezos, you know what I'm saying? And, and like Marlboro. And you know what I mean? Like in first iteration, everybody's trying to do it on their own. They realize that they don't have the capital to do it on their own. And so now folks are actually interested in forming cooperatives and collectives to actually go at some of these licenses together. And it wasn't because. It was like, you need a cooperative. It you know wasn't because you gave them a political education, no, like teaching yeah, about cooperatives. teaching right. about cooperatives. It was like, damn, <laughs> man, like, I, I'm going to put my 100000 in here, and, and it ain't enough. And this was all my guy. And I was like, oh, okay, but if you put yours in, and you put yours in, and you put your, we all put ours together, we actually got a shot at this. What do you call that? Well, there's a bill that was passed, right, that, that allows for worker-owner co-ops, And so that realization actually happens through walking with the people and being committed to the walk, opposed to being, you know, committed to the sprint, which is something I feel like we often do is sprint. But there's a walk. Does that make you think about some lessons about how guaranteed income could be less individualized? Um, Could we be making different types of collective investments in people? Is that something you're thinking about for the future? Or is this something where we make these individual investments and then that happens organically that folks go into relationship? The reality is that reparations has to be satisfied in the United States. We think about the Chicago Future Fund as experimenting with the pillar of compensation for survivors of the war on drugs. Our work comes out of a reparations framework, right? So the UN defines reparations as restitution, rehabilitation, guarantee of non-repetition, satisfaction. Those are the pillars, right? And so for us, you know, we're experimenting with it all. I don't think that we get to equity without reparations, right? There's a deficit and there's a cause to that deficit. There was a harm that occurred. And until the country addresses, acknowledges that that harm, you know, commits to rehabilitating the survivors of that harm, commits to restoring the communities where that harm occurred, commits to never letting that harm occur again, and that commitment is satisfactory to the people, then it is what it is. We have to satisfy reparations in a real way. 
in the United States. And so this experiment with the Chicago Future Fund um, and the Big Payback campaign is one getting people used to this idea of reparations. And that vision around reparations is so much broader than just reparations for chattel slavery. It is literally a way of living. You know, when we get to that abolitionist future where there are no police, like what does restitution look like? What does a guarantee of non-repetition look like? And then so if we can normalize the reparations framework, what becomes possible for our people in the end? And so that's really, I think, the continuation of our work, which is also unique to the guaranteed income space because we come into the guaranteed income space thinking about guaranteed income as a modality of repair not a modality of deservedness and economic indicators, which is way different. You know, I think there was early on in the in the advocacy work, there was a tension between the reparations movement and the guaranteed income movement. There wasn't a clear understanding, I think, or assessment of how targeted guaranteed income, let me be very, very, very specific, could serve as a mode of compensation for survivors. And so for me, it was like, well, we're going to deepen that discussion and deepen that analysis and also provide some research to prove that compensation and the form of guaranteed income can actually have these particular outcomes related to the communities we serve. As these pilot programs become more and more prevalent, how can we make sure that we prioritize access to folks who historically have been left out? First and foremost, I think Ensuring that whatever application process that is developed, the folks that you're serving are uh, eligible and, and it is accessible to them, right? Sometimes these applications have 100 pages. That's labor, right? And if you're in the midst of unemployment and a host of other, you know, traumas associated with just living life in the U.S., that could be too cumbersome, right? Ensure that, you know, there's no background checks related to the intervention, just the name background check alone can make people stray away from a process. And it's because of historical trauma related to having a background. There's over 11,900 permanent punishments. There's a whole host of, of barriers that I think folks that are closest to it understand intimately, and they should be in the leadership for that reason, um, because they can point out the unique areas of trauma that folks who do not experience it may not know. And so it's not their fault for advocating for something different. It's just that they don't know. And so it's important that we have, you know, I think intergenerational dialogue, we have cross-class dialogue, that we have, you know, intersectional dialogue, right, as, as, as a whole. So we can really point out all the intersections in which our people are feeling traumatized, ostracized. As you are watching this movement expand and these efforts expand nationwide, are there things that are red flags for you, areas of concern for you, things that you are distrustful of at this moment or that you're saying, hey, we really need to heed um, some warnings here. Be careful about this. I do have my pain points as it relates to the intersection of reparations and guaranteed income. If you believe that everyone deserves a guaranteed income and you don't acknowledge chattel slavery, <laughs> right? <laughs> and the debt that's owed to the descendants of those folks, then how could you be standing on a real guaranteed income framework? I think you have to get to fairness first, right? Like they say, equity is fairness essentially, right? And so if you just give guaranteed income to everyone and you don't ensure that the folks who are not on equal footing get to equal footing first, you're not actually addressing the root causes. The folks that are most affected by this particular area of focus need to be targeted and we need to remedy the, the harm that occurred in that space. And reparations provides a framework for that, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, that's where there's an energy to get guaranteed income done regardless of its impact. And for me, I think the impact is the most important aspect, which is why we focused on system impact of formerly incarcerated people for our pilot. We have to humanize the folks who have been intentionally dehumanized. And for me, that is part of the, you know, the challenge that I could foresee or forecast for the GI community is that when guaranteed income becomes a thing, people are still going to be like, well, what about reparations? Right. And we saw that billions of dollars have been invested into GI experiments. And I know that my people are probably lost for words when they see us standing on pillars talking about guaranteed income in the absence of reparations. Mm. And so we got to continue to lift it up in ways that ensure that our people are 
compensated for the harms that occurred. We got to ensure that we are inserting the reparations framework in conversation on a regular basis. I think it's a really important distinction because something we heard from President Preckwinkle that we hear from a lot of folks is, okay, this type of universal initiative or more universal initiative is more politically palatable. And so they might say, well, if the same people are getting the money, what difference does it make if we call it reparations or if we call it something else, if the impact is the same? And part of what you're saying is, well, it's actually not only about the dollars and cents, right? If the same pool of people gets the same dollars and cents, but there's never any acknowledgement, there's never any formal restitution, there's never any promise that this is never going to happen again, then the impact is actually not the same. I think that that distinction and what you're talking about when you talk about reparations is really crucial. The intervention without the acknowledgement, it doesn't do us justice. And this is the point I really want to get through. If you use the statistics of black people without acknowledging the harm that occurred to black people and you win your said intervention, right, did it actually serve its purpose, right? Because you're not acknowledging that something happened. You're not just in these economic circumstances due to, you know, you putting your best foot forward. You get what I mean? Like, no, no, these were legitimate barriers to economy, housing, intentional investments in prisons and police. There was a harm that occurred here. We're going to heal together in one way or another, right? And this compensation is not the end-all be-all. It is what you deserve. One of the questions that we ask each of our guests who are participants in guaranteed income programs is we ask them, what has this made possible for you? So we want to ask you the same question as an organizer. You know, you've been in this for a long time. What has this particular type of work um, made possible for you as an organizer, as a person? For me, the greatest benefit that I've experienced in the program was the orientation. I had a room full of formerly incarcerated people from Austin, Inglewood, West Garfield Park, all of the areas where they say, don't go. <laughs> in a space laughing, smiling, real joy. Folks might have even been ops in that room. You know what I'm saying? Right. But they were together in community for this particular intervention, right? And so I think, you know, for me, the most valuable experience I had has been the orientation, has been, you know, the consistent uh, reconnection that we build for the Chicago Future Fund participants so we go bowling together. I think the, the community that we've developed and that we've built is the greatest benefit of the pilot. And just seeing the lights come on for folks as it relates to like, oh, we could do this. Mm. When they look up and they see Zoe, Nicole, a bunch of other FIP folks, formerly incarcerated people that actually went out and raised the money to make it happen, what becomes possible for them shifts like, oh, I could do that. The fear that fell off of folks' shoulders. Mm. I would say this, like a lot of folks thought it was entrapment, fam. Like, Mm. Because our city's big on entrapment. Mm. And so we saying that if you're formally incarcerated, you are eligible. Right. Come sign up. Come give us your name. Come tell us where you yeah, live. Give us our name. Give us how you like, info. All right, right. Put your name on a list. And so you... <laughs> sure. Exactly. So at orientation, folks was in there with like their heads down, like, I don't know. And so when we got up there, we spoke and folks opened up. You could see the demeanor change. Their, their chest opened up like... You feel what I'm saying? Right, like, right, right. that was like, they ain't here to cause no harm to us we really about to get this little check oh this is legit okay friends at the top of the episode i told you we'd be wrapping up with some surprise guests and these people are really special to me every episode of guaranteed you hear a lot of me running my mouth and musing aloud about this and that but the truth is this is a team effort All of my reflection has come through deep, recurring debriefs with our producing team, Daniel, Damon, and Jeanette. To close this out, I sprung it on them that I wanted to make some of that reflection public, to interview them about what all of us have learned through the process of making this show. Because candidly, I think this is a big part of how social change happens. Asking each other questions, testing our ideas out a little bit, probing at the edges, disagreeing sometimes, and learning in community. Here's our conversation. I wanted to kick us into like a little bit of a reflective space by asking you to think about the following prompt as it pertains to guaranteed income. I used to think, but now I think. 
And maybe before we start talking, we can just take 60 seconds if you want to jot down any initial thoughts or just have a moment to reflect. Um, Where were you before we embarked on this project and your thoughts on this topic and where are you now? So I'm going to go ahead and set a timer for 60 seconds. Our listeners will edit that part so we don't actually have to have 60 seconds of dead air. No, make them sit with us. (laughs) Sit and reflect. So I used to think guaranteed income was something that I agreed with, but thought about more from a head political space and would worry about how such a a, a policy that's rooted in like taking care of people could be co-opted to actually strengthen the parts of our economy that exploit people. And now I think about guaranteed income more from a place of humanity and care and day-to-day life and as like a necessary tool to politically activate and mobilize the masses of people who are being hurt. And so I used to think about guaranteed income in the head. And what this experience has taught me is that like economic conversation should forefront emotionality should be emotional conversations more than analytical. Mm. I'm snapping, emphatic snapping. (laughs) She's giving prompts. She's snapping responses. You are (laughs) in your home space. (laughs) I used to think that guaranteed income was something that wasn't something that America could do purely because I think we are told so often of how poor we are. And especially coming from Chicago, I feel like we're constantly reminded that that city's broke. Like we don't have any means to support past what we're doing. It just felt like a very foreign idea. Now the way I think about guaranteed income is that it's really not a foreign idea, but there's a lot of boundaries and um, systems put in place to make it feel that way. It's upsetting because I think I thought at the beginning learning about it more would help me feel better about it. But I think it just made me even more upset the way that we distribute our our means and how we um, underserve communities who could actually benefit and grow from being supported in the way that we have the means too. So I think with with talking to everybody, it's just a reminder of that and seeing what they're doing with this income to sustain themselves versus, you know, getting that sustained from a government that could have possibly been doing it for years and years prior. So it just pissed me off, I think, which is not what I was expecting to feel by the end of this. (laughs) But here I am. Here I am. Angry. Angry at the government. Who knew? Yeah, I love that. You know, what it has me thinking about is what we really mean when we talk about precarity. I used to think that guaranteed income could be a way to prevent possible precarity for people. And I think what I learned is how much guaranteed income can serve as a helping hand in the precarity that are people that in the precarity that people are already experiencing. The guaranteed income doesn't just mean oh, good with this, I don't lose my house because I can't pay rent. It's in the conditions that I'm already living in. This isn't just preventing the disaster. This is helping me address the conditions I'm already facing. Um, so I think about John having like physical symptoms lift. You know, For Stephanie, what it, what it meant to like be able to take care of herself, her kid, and her community differently, it's not just a method of averting disaster. It's a method of addressing the like micro apocalypses that we're all living in uh, and then helping to take the edge off of some of that. And again, that's not a solution for everything, but it helped me, I think, better understand the specific circumstances that so many people, so many of our neighbors are in every day. Mm -hmm. More snaps, more snaps. I would say as a Gemini, I have two. So apologies, but I'm not really sorry. Um, Okay. I guess like, one is that I, I used to think that this should be a big national policy. And now I think that actually the ways that different types of communities have been able to tailor this initiative to 
uh, work differently where they are is actually really important. And I'm not sure how to square that because I also still think it should be broad, but I don't know how you like also you know, make space for people to say, well, in our community, this is where the need really is without becoming like inefficient and bureaucratic. And then my second one is more, I guess, philosophical. I knew before we started that like direct cash payments would help people. And I had a hunch, which is basically like the guiding premise of doing this podcast and asking y'all to be on this um, adventure (laughs) together, friendship adventure. I felt confident that if we could really try to tell the story behind a policy that that would be so much richer and more nuanced and complicated than solely having like other types of outputs, outcomes and analytic data. I felt like that was something that we could contribute. And I feel proud that we've been able to do that. At the same time, now I think that in addition to direct cash payment helping people, I think what Rich helped me think about a lot is the idea that this is enabling people to see a different type of possibility. And Jeanette, this speaks directly to what you said, which is like, I just didn't think this was a thing that could be done. I wonder what it means for people to see somebody in their community, like showing up for them and redistributing resources in a different way. And what that enables us to think about imaginatively about other ways that we could be supporting each other, other ways that we could be distributing resources differently. And I remember from Mayor Tubbs in our very first episode is him just saying like how important it was that the nuts and bolts were in place. He's like, the first check can't be late. They have to get the money in a way that they can access it. They have to get it on time. If you don't have a bank account, you have to be able to get your money. If you like whatever your situation is, like the money has to show up because after that, people lose trust if it doesn't. And I think that's very related to what Rich said about, you know, folks showing up at the initial meeting, literally wondering, like, is this a ploy to get our contact information so that the government can like harm us in some way? And when the money does show up and when it isn't just your ops like trying to entrap you, what then becomes possible in your own head about what types of things you can and should demand and what becomes possible in our collective imagination about what we can do. Like across all of these pilots, um, people have given out oodles and oodles of money. And we were lucky enough to talk to people whose lives were transformed in all these little ways by this money. And like the world didn't end, right? Like it turns out that it was fine and good. And all the the naysayers and all the the scare tactics about what's going to happen didn't come to fruition as far as we can tell. What does that make possible for the next thing? What comes next? What more can we demand? What more can we ask for? And I don't think I understood guaranteed income previously as being like part of a this broader imaginative work. Yeah, I, I love that. I feel like the way you just named that makes me feel like what Jeanette offered is like the avatar of the shift we want to make in all people, not just about guaranteed income, but you know, most structural issues that are facing our society. The, the, the shift from I don't think this could happen to it's unacceptable that it's not happening. Right? Like that that is the journey we want all people to take across the board when it comes to issues of people's housing, food, yeah, everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, everyone should have a house. I don't think it could happen to it is unacceptable. I am angered because I have an expectation that this should have already been been happening. Um, and so I hope folks who are listening, like similarly to Jeanette, like are on that journey. Yeah. What else in our lives, in our culture, in our communities should be guaranteed, you know? Mm. All the things that people said suddenly became possible for them, right? Burying your sibling in a way that brings them dignity and brings joy and closure to your family as you celebrate their life. You know, your back not hurting, being able to take your kid to a summer chess camp, you know, because you have the flexibility to do that. All of those things are possible. Mm -hmm. And it's not just affecting one person. Every person we talked to was also contributing that money to either their children or their loved ones or, you know, somebody in need that wasn't possibly even in their family unit. So I think that's something to realize that this money isn't just helping one person get by in their life. It's helping many people connect and be better off than what they were doing before. Yeah. So there's there's this like human side of people naming, because I have these resources, I'm able to process the the lack that has been engineered into my day-to-day life. But also it's interesting is that like 
no one said I'm putting this in like a retirement account or like I'm stashing under my mattress. Like for the folks who are thinking in the terms of economic productivity, like all of it was going to consumption that will stimulate local and larger economies. And so even from that point of argument of if we want to talk about sustainability or, you know, GDP or whatever, blah, 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 that we kind of subverted in this show through these stories that we heard, all of those things go to the economy that we need anyway, to childcare services, to healthcare services, to recreation, to, you know, day-to-day needs. I would like to say that I had fun. I had a good time. I want to hammer in on that fun though. I want to talk specifically about not just the conversations, but being able to travel into all of these people's spaces what was that like for you? You've now gone this through this human interest journey of learning all of these people's intimate spaces throughout the city. Yeah, you know, I feel like I'm blessed to do lots of different types of work that I enjoy and that that bring me joy and fulfillment. I think talking to people and gathering stories is like a thread that connects many of them. And so I always feel very privileged because first of all, it's an immense act of trust and caring for people to say like, come hang out with me and be in my space. Um, Not only physical space, but also like headspace, story space. And it's something that I feel like is my responsibility to keep with care. I think of that I have like this box of glowing orbs inside that are like people's people's stories that they've that they've you know loaned to me or shared with me that I have to care for and be a good steward of so number one it, it feels like I'm receiving a gift every time somebody talks to me and you know people shared very tough very personal things on this podcast and that was an act of trust every time and I feel um, privileged to have been a recipient of people's trust and also, I will see each of those intersections, playgrounds, corners, streets a little bit differently because I can now say that I have a personal connection with somebody and that I got to meet somebody and get to know somebody that that is from that space. And that feels really special. And I hope that our listeners experience that as well. Even if you weren't lucky enough to like literally be on the playground with Lucas, hearing him talk about the Colats conjecture. I hope that this show invites you to look a little bit differently at your neighbors and to look a little bit differently on people whose lives you might see in the news or on the street or, you know, people that you're in community with and to understand that people are going through a lot of things, but also people have a lot of insights, wisdom and points of connection that are worth knowing more about that that can be the basis of collective action, that that can be the basis of us getting together and demanding more, demanding things that, you know, might seem otherwise unfeasible or untenable. I think that for all of us, that begins with connection, that begins with relationship. Um, So yeah, I don't know, be nosy. You don't got to host a podcast, ask people questions. Like you could do that anyway, you know? And you do. And I do. (laughs) Wow. Read me. Explain me. I do ask people questions. I ask people a lot of questions on the street. (laughs) You do. I do have one (laughs) big takeaway. Yeah. I want to add, you know, when I think about what happens when you collectivize the potential impact of guaranteeing people's resources, we didn't prompt this, but a lot of folks talked about these discrete points of advocacy that when you ask them what's most important to them or when their life is more precarious, they care about disability justice or mental health or, or housing or immigration or the impact incarceration has on our society. And so maybe it's a nature of the community that's informed us, but we weren't really prompting or soliciting this to be a justice podcast. But to be transparent, I, we are people that are interested in transforming our society for the more just and healthy and so what I see from this policy is not that it's just good and will, like Daniel said, address crises or economic precarity. It will increase people's capacity to build towards justice, to show up to the issues that are important. So for folks who are already in certain movements or are organizing, you know, maybe guaranteed income is not your focus issue, but I, I see how it could be a through thread through all justice. If you want more people to volunteer, if you want more people to donate. If you want more people to not be in stress and in conflict with each other or and burnt out or burnt out, what would it look like for your base or for the people you're trying to reach 
whether it's about housing or it's about environmental hazards or it's about education access, if that community is also being advocated for to make sure that they have guaranteed basic needs. And we're only talking in this instance about $6,000 a year, right? Like we're not talking about some gargantuan, like life-changing amount, but just honestly, the the marginal amount of $6,000 is life-changing for so many people in this harmful and violent economy. And so what would it look like, not from a person to person, household to household, but for communities, for neighborhoods, for movements, if there is a overlapping base of people whose day-to-day needs are being more supported and guaranteed. Mm. Wow, now people know our hidden agenda. <laughs> Justice. Yeah, we're trying to make things better. <laughs> we did? Yeah. Gotcha. Trying to help. Got him. <laughs> yeah, people, in case you yeah. lose this whole party. <laughs> Cry your way to justice. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's what's up. That's what's up. Um, that was great, friends. Does anyone have any uh, closing thoughts? I think that's going to have to be your job. Okay. Sometimes when we talk about changing the world through organizing, activism, policy, revolution, take your pick, it feels like there's an unspoken boundary. On one side of the line is what we might call the soft stuff, thinking through identity, our feelings, fighting for a world where people feel good and connected and loved and accepted. And the other side of the line is the hard stuff, analysis and economics and policy nuts and bolts. But I think it's powerful that President Preckwinkle brought up the Black Panthers and Dr. King because both of those examples give us models for uniting these two sides. Dr. King's beloved community required economic justice. The Panthers demanded jobs, housing, and self-understanding and a sense of peace. To me, every conversation we've had on this show has illustrated that care has to be a thread in the world of economic transformation and that economic justice has to be a thread we think about actively in building systems of care. Over the course of this show, tons of you have reached out and told us how much it meant to you to hear from our guests. You've heard Sharif's story and connected it with your own parenting aspirations. You heard Stephanie's story and connected it with your own mental health journey. And maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe these points of connection can be the foundation for the kind of interwoven networks of care we're talking about. What's wild about this whole show is that it's based on something people used to think was kind of politically impossible. But it's not fringe. It's literally happening right now. And when one thing becomes guaranteed, there's a cascade of possibilities that emerges. Having cash opens space for hosting a family gathering, which opens space for healing relationships, which opens space for serving your people. And on we go, providing folks with the basics, creating a momentum that tumbles us forward. It makes me think, what other possibilities await us over the horizon that we can't quite see? It makes me think that even in times of despair, there's so much waiting for us. It makes me think we can get there. This has been Guaranteed, a podcast created by Respair Production and Media, and me, your host, Eve Ewing, with the support of the Economic Security Project, And once more, we'd like to thank Jenna Severson for her assistance. We also got to thank Pete Subkoviak, Taylor Bishop, and Davon Clark for their help with this episode. Our producers are the best. They're Damon Williams, Daniel Kisslinger, and Jeanette Harris-Courts. And our theme music is the song Woof by Sen Morimoto. Thanks, Sen. It's been real. Catch you later. Bye. My mother was a librarian, so you have to understand how old I am. And her view was that comic books were the spawn of Satan. Yeah. And we were, we were to read books. Yeah. You know, that is, a, that is a uh, popular opinion.